as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, uh, we come now in these few moments to your word. We are mindful of the words of the Lord Jesus when he said, apart from him, we can do nothing. And so, Father, we would ask that the spirit of Christ would be present as the word of God is proclaimed. We ask this now in Jesus name. Amen. One of my favorite figures from American church history was a circuit riding preacher and later one of the first Methodist bishops in America, a man by the name of Francis Asbury. Asbury, as I said, was a Methodist. He was born in England in 1745 and he came to America in 1771. He actually volunteered to come when the Wesley brothers were coming over. He was one of two British Methodist ministers who remained in the colonies when the war broke out. Asbury, among other things, was a faithful diarist. In fact, his journals and letters are now a three-volume work that you can find and read at your leisure. Uh, Asbury was a physically large and imposing man, and the travel schedule that he kept, and all of it was on horseback, bordered on pure insanity. Well, one of my favorite Asbury stories involves his circuit riding labors. He had arrived in a town in what is now part of Kentucky and the village, and I'm quoting now, the village ruffian stopped him on the outskirts of town. Asbury recorded the entire incident in his journal. He says, uh, the man, this man stops him and says, preacher, I need you to come down off that horse because I need to see what kind of man you are. Asbury steps down, faces the guy, the guy hauls off and punches him in the face. Now, the ruffian said, what's the good book say you ought to do? Asbury turns the other side of his face and the guy punches him again. Then, this is my favorite part of the story. Asbury writes, seeing as our Lord had given no further instruction... I proceeded to thrash the foolishness out of that fellow. He took two punches and then just beat the fool out of him. Now, that particular story helpfully illustrates the challenge that our text for this morning presents. You see, Asbury took Jesus' words literally. But I want to suggest something to us this morning. I want to suggest that they're not meant to be taken literally. That Jesus is not telling God's people to take a second punch or to go naked in public or to go broke giving to anyone that asks you for a handout. So if we don't take them literally, what's going on? How are we supposed to read this particular text? Well, if you look at the outline in your bulletin, you'll see uh, what we want to try to cover as we think about this particular passage this morning. The big idea then is this. Jesus uses rhetorical overstatement to strike at the very core of human selfishness. 
Jesus uses rhetorical overstatement to strike at the very core of human selfishness. Three points we want to make this morning. The first one is this. Why is Jesus using hyperbole? Why is Jesus using hyperbole? Well, let's before we answer that, let's make sure we understand exactly what hyperbole is. If you look in the dictionary, hyperbole is defined as extravagant exaggeration. Synonyms listed then would be embellishment and overstatement. An example of a hyperbole would be when someone said uh, they made enough food to feed an army. They're not literally feeding an army, but you get the point of the hyperbole. So why is Jesus using rhetorical overstatement? Why is Jesus using, why is he embellishing? Why is he being extravagant in his exaggeration? Well, Jesus is doing it because he's trying to point something out that if he merely said, it's bad to be selfish, the establishment would have gone, well, yeah, sure. We all know you shouldn't be selfish. Or if Jesus answers, as he will later in the gospel, the entire law is summed up in these two things, love God and love your neighbor. They would have said, oh, yes, Jesus, you've answered well. And I'm sure that all of us would uh, preferably walk around and go, oh, yeah, I, I love God. I love my neighbor. But when we start to really drill down and think specifically and particularly about what that looks like. I'm afraid that we would discover the same thing that the establishment would have discovered in Jesus day. Yes, we would agree that it's bad to be selfish. And yet I wonder if at times we're not part of the problem. Jesus is using hyperbole to show just how deep-rooted our own selfishness truly is. Now, by the way, it isn't just hyperbole that does this for us. Uh, if you're married, you know about 10 minutes into your marriage, you realize how selfish you are. If you are a parent, you realize about five minutes into bringing that child home how selfish and self-centered they are. God is gracious to us in showing us repeatedly and in many different ways how selfish and self-centered we can be. So if this isn't meant to be taken literally, if Jesus is using hyperbole, what's he want us to do with this? Well, friends, he's calling us to use wisdom as we think about various and assorted situations that we are confronted with. It's very easy to say, I'm not selfish, I love my neighbor. It's very hard, though, to uh, be confronted with these particular situations and not respond selfishly. We're going to look at them in turn. But let's understand that Jesus is using this particular rhetorical device to grab our attention and to make sure that we understand just how selfish we really are. 
Now, let's make sure, let's deal with what I think would be a common objection, and that is to go, wait, uh, but pastor, if you say that this is hyperbole and not literally true, aren't we diminishing the authority of the Bible? No. In fact, I want to argue that we're actually, uh, we're, we, we're going to get less out of Jesus' words if we read them literally. Let me give an illustration. Uh, when I was in seminary, I served on staff at a, at a church. I was 25, 26 years old, uh, knew very little, which is why I was the youth minister. It's generally where they put guys that know very little. They let them do youth ministry. I was in the office on one afternoon, and our particular staff, uh, we practiced the Billy Graham rule like it was our job. So there would never be a time in which you would ever be uh, in, in the room, in a meeting, whatever, one-on-one uh, -on -one with a staff member and then a female. And so uh, my phone rang. It was our senior pastor. He needed me to come to his office because we were sitting down. There was a, a woman, a young woman who had come to see him. Well, the young woman in question was actually the daughter of a guy who was on staff at our church. She had gotten married. Uh, she was she was my age. She had gotten married uh, about four months earlier. And when uh, I came in, I came in and sat down and they were in the office and she took off uh, sunglasses and this side of her face was black and blue. And it was black and blue because uh, her husband of four months had come home really inebriated. And had he'd, he'd beaten her, and so she was there from the to get counsel uh, from the pastor who married her. And it's it's probably worth pointing out at this point uh, the pastor in question was he was in his seventies and he was close to retiring. Really good man, a really kind man. Um, but as you're going to see, uh, we're often I, I I love that Alistair Begg quote, right? The best of men are men at best. And so she is tearfully uh, telling her pastor uh, what happened between herself and her husband. And she's wanting counsel from him. And he looks at her and says, uh, thankfully, with tears in his eyes, you know, I'm so sorry to say this, but the Bible says you're supposed to turn the other cheek. You got to go back. That's why I say that what Jesus is calling us to here is wisdom, and his statement is hyperbole. To the extent that we use Jesus' words to tell anyone who's in a context of physical abuse they need to stay in the physical abuse, or we need to tell people that it's okay to go broke, just giving up your stuff. We need to stop and realize that, no, this is not a checklist that Jesus says, well, if you do these things, you're okay. No, he's using overstatement to compel us to be wise, to compel us to stop and really think about how self-centered we actually are. Well, one of the challenges that comes with getting this particular text right is that we don't understand the quote at the beginning in the right way. Let's look at it again. Uh, verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's a quotation uh, right out of Leviticus chapter 24, the text that Gabrielle read for us. And historically, the concept that is there, 
And in fact, uh, keep your finger in Matthew, but go back to Leviticus 24 and let's understand this because I love the way it's summed up. Leviticus chapter 24, verse 17, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. So here's what's being taught in what we now know as the Lex Talonis. What's being taught is a kind of judicial restraint. It's the idea that the punishment should fit the crime. And so as we think about this particular concept There are two things that we need to sort of wrap our hands around. First, in what is being taught in the book of Leviticus, it it means that retribution is demanded. If you're going to have a just society, you can't have people going around uh, just killing your livestock and you get nothing in return. We can't have people just walking around killing one another and nothing happens. At the same time, You cannot have a society in which, let's say, uh, I insult Matt because he's an Iowa State fan, and that's just sheer idiocy. And Matt takes it personally, and so now there's a blood feud, right? And all of a sudden, uh, my children have to watch out because Matt's trying to run them over with his car. You laugh at that. A couple weekends ago, Nathaniel and I, uh, because Nathaniel's now 18, he had never seen the classic The Godfather. I'm convinced that every young man ought to see The Godfather. And so we watched The Godfather. And there's that scene, you remember, when Michael Corleone gets sent to Sicily and he's out with his two bodyguards uh, after he's whacked the crooked cop and the other mobster. And so he's got to leave. And they're walking around and he says, hey, where's all the young men? And they're like, well, they're all dead because of all the vendettas we have. There are cultures in which insulting the idiocy of one's Iowa State fandom can create a kind of long-running feud. We have it in our culture as well. It's called the Hatfields and the McCoys. We're fighting. Why? Well, we don't remember, but we're fighting. What is being taught here and what the, the concept that's being presented is that retribution must be both demanded, but it also has to be equal. That you cannot have a just society in which people can just walk around and kill one another and nothing's done. Neither can you have a just society in which uh, someone takes a front, they take an insult, or someone is offended at something someone says, and all of a sudden uh, they view that then as a legitimate reason to do worse to them than what was done in the first place. So the Lex Talonis is not just the establishment of an individual's rights. But the Lex Talonis also sets limits on what justice is supposed to look like. The punishment must fit the crime. There has to be punishment, and it has to be appropriate. It has to be equal, and those are the two tensions that need to be held. If you have more questions about this, please see Don. Have lunch with Don. He can tell you all about the. He's a lawyer. I mean, he'd love to talk with you about this kind of stuff.
The other concept that we have to keep in mind, though, is that there's also a tension in this text between what a what a an individual is called to, and what a society is called to. See, if you read on in that text in Leviticus, at no point uh, does God tell his people they themselves are to take uh, sort of vigilante action. Or they themselves are supposed to go out and, uh, and sort of exhort their own brand of justice. No, this is things that are called to, they're called to as a society. And if you look at verse 23 in Leviticus 24, uh, we read that Moses spoke to the people of Israel, so the group, and they corporately brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. This is a societal action. It's a corporate action. It's not one individual saying, hey, you've offended me. You've wronged me. Therefore, I'm going to exact my own brand of justice. There is a distinction that's made between what a culture is called to do and what an individual is called to do. We need to keep that tension in mind as well. After 9-11, I remember, um, and I, I hated, I, I, I both hated it and I was absolutely um, enamored and just enthralled when news folks would go and they would interview family members of people uh, who were murdered in the attacks on 9-11. Like I, I, on, on the one hand, I would just cringe because I thought, man, if, if, if somebody that I loved had been murdered in that way and you stick a microphone in my face, number one, shame on you. And number two, I shouldn't really be responsible for anything that comes out of my mouth. And I remember they were interviewing uh, one of the passengers on the flight that went down in the field in Philadelphia or in Pennsylvania and um, his, his, uh, his sister and brother-in-law were saying repeatedly, he would not want any kind of retaliation. It would make him sick to know that we're sending warplanes or that we'd go bomb people that he just know we just, you know, we shouldn't do this. He wouldn't want that. Well, he might not. And as an individual, he has every right to have that particular view. But there's a distinction between what the individual is called to and what a society is called to. The Lex Talonis says that for a culture to be a just culture, certain things must happen. Justice is demanded and that justice must be equal. Jesus is reminding his listeners that as an individual, your rights are not always necessarily sacred. That as an individual, what you view as your own right, what you view as uh, something that you are entitled to, can be and ought to be at times set aside for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of the gospel. In other words, Jesus is reminding us that there is a difference between our rights and our responsibilities. 
we have a responsibility in Jesus, in the gospel, to conduct ourselves according to the wisdom that he's laying out here. But far too often, I think, we cry out for our rights. Not to ask the question, what am I responsible for in the gospel? But what are my rights? Now, let's understand each of these. Let's understand uh, the illustrations that he's using to sort of flesh this out a little bit. First, uh, the, the, the principle that we need to take away from this first illustration that he uses uh, when he says, uh, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. Uh, being slapped on the right cheek uh, was a colloquialism to speak of someone insulting you publicly. Again, it doesn't mean literally if someone walks up to you and cold cocks you, you got to turn the other side of the face until you can beat the foolishness out of them. No, he's talking about someone who insults you publicly. Well, we all understand, I think, that when we are insulted publicly or when someone comes at us, our natural uh, imp- verbally or they, they attack um, our, our, um, our reputation, we understand that our natural response is we want to vindicate ourselves. And Jesus is saying to his listeners, no, listen, hey, uh, part, of, part of loving God really is that you are going to reject the urge to self-vindication. You're going to trust that the Lord will vindicate you. Now, again, let's be clear. He's not talking about physical assault. He's talking about when we are insulted. He's talking about when our character is attacked. He's talking about the times in which people say things about us that are just blatantly not true. And Jesus says the way of the kingdom is that you turn the other cheek. Those are stunningly hard words. And I have to tell you, as I was preparing this week to preach, uh, the last two and a half years basically flashed through my mind. And uh, I, I have struggled with the desire and the impulse for self-vindication. And I understand that at the end of the day, that should be left to the Lord. Uh, the better angels of my nature understand that. Uh, the kid, though, that grew up in Fremont wants his pound of flesh. I want to self-vindicate. I want to use words because I'd like to think I'm good with them to fire back. And yet that's not what the gospel calls us to. Jesus says that we are to reject self-vindication. Why? Because God will vindicate his people. And we need to leave that to him. Secondly, then, uh, we're to trust God for our most basic needs. Now we have a particular legal situation going on. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So uh, Jewish law prohibited 
if if you were going to sue someone and and you needed something to be held in collateral, you could take their outer garment, but you had to give it back to them at the end of the night because it gets cold at night. And, you know, God's not uh, just some complete, uh, you know, despot up in heaven. But the idea is that if I sue you and I, I hold your cloak as collateral, when evening comes around, I'm going to return it to you. I'm going to return it to you because God says I should. And God doesn't want you to freeze at night because it's cold. And Jesus says, well, here's the deal. Uh, if someone uh, takes your tunic in other words, if they take your outer garment, give them your cloak as well. So if you're being sued and they say, hey, uh, let me have your outer garment, you shouldn't just give them your outer garment. You should give them everything. And so now, literally, if you take this to be literally true, uh, you're standing before the person who sued you naked. That may be more punishment than they could possibly bear. And you're going, wait a minute, and, and wait, because in the Old Testament, there are all kinds of rules banning nakedness. And there are all kinds of cultural rules that, that extolled uh, modesty. So why is Jesus saying this? Well, Jesus is, again, uh, reminding us that we are to trust God for our most basic needs. We need clothing. We just do. Like we need food and water and shelter. We need clothing. And so the concept here is that we are to trust God for our most basic needs. When someone comes at us in a way that feels like it is threatening those needs. Loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength means that we trust him for those most basic needs. Several years ago, I was at a, um, a preaching workshop. It, it wasn't a Simeon Trust workshop. It was through my alma mater. And uh, uh, my preaching professor was speaking and he was talking about the necessity to stay in the pulpit and tell the truth, even though people don't like it. And uh, he gets phone calls from folks all the time. And one of the common complaints is, well, Dr. Smith, if I say the things the Bible really says, they're going to fire me. And then how am I going to take care of my family? And his response was, who do you think's taking care of you anyway? It's not you. It's not your congregation. It's God who takes care of you. Trust him, be obedient, and understand that God can be trusted for our most basic needs. Uh, verse 41 then gives us the third illustration that we're to give freely of our time and effort. This one uh, gets really, really cranky really, really fast because here's what he's talking about what would happen under Roman rules if the Romans uh, had a proclamation that if you were standing by the side of the road and a Roman caravan is going by and Roman soldiers have to carry their own kit and they're tired of carrying their own kit, they can grab you and legally compel you to walk with them for one mile. And Jesus says, nope, not one mile. How about two? Now, Never mention the fact, I mean, this sort of overlooks the idea that you're probably engaged in something important. You're not just standing around idly, but you're out in your field or you're engaged in some kind of work or you're practicing uh, whatever trade it is, that, however it is that you make your living. And Jesus says, no, if they come and they compel you to go a mile, go the extra mile. Give freely of your time and of your effort. Now, those of you who are young think that's no big deal. 
But the older you get, the more you realize that your time and your effort have to be carefully shepherded because you have fewer, you have less of both to give. You have less energy and bandwidth in that regard. And you are aware that time is not just an endless commodity. What's it look like to love your neighbor? You give freely of your time and of your effort. Fourthly, and finally, then, the last illustration, then, is he reminds us that we're to give to those whose need is greater than our own. Give to those whose need is greater than yours. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, uh, we don't have it much here, but generally speaking, if you're in an urban context and someone comes and they're begging from you, you understand that if you give them money, uh, you've probably just entitled uh, whatever habit it is that they are engaged in. And so you're probably not doing the person any good. In fact, you've probably just paid for uh, the drugs or the alcohol or whatever it is that has them uh, in the situation they're in. It was a little different in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, being a beggar, uh, there, there were actual, it actually meant the person could not care for themselves and their family also could not provide and care for them. Uh, it was much less likely that the individual in question uh, was some sort of had some sort of addiction or some sort of uh, mental illness. But Jesus is reminding us that loving our neighbor means that we give freely to those whose need is greater than our own. It was interesting. Um, John Calvin, when he was pastoring in Geneva. A group of merchants came to him because they were very concerned about uh, the poor in Geneva. And uh, since Calvin was heading the church and since all the elders of the church, for the most part, were also the members of the city council, uh, they came to Calvin and said, hey, what are y'all going to do about the poor people in our city? And Calvin looked at them and said, it's really simple. The Lord made you wealthy. You deal with it. It's a wonderful example of what Jesus is talking about. Give to those whose need is greater than your own. I find it really interesting that as we think about these examples and as we think about the illustration and as we think about how Jesus is speaking in, 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 with overstatement, that while these things were overstatement for us, they were all literally true for him in his passion. Jesus was reviled. He was insulted. He was struck literally, repeatedly. And yet, even when he was taunted to do so, he did not call down a battalion of angels. He did not call down the wrath of heaven on those who were mistreating him. Jesus hung literally naked for our redemption. And not only were his garments taken from him, but in order to fulfill the Old Testament text, his garments were actually gambled away. They were given away by Lot. Jesus' entire life in ministry was giving freely of his time 
and of his effort. And the entire picture and message and content of the cross is God the Father sending God the Son to meet the need of those who was uh, was so much greater than uh, than Christ. Christ had no need of redemption. But we desperately need the redemption that he offers. So friends, as we think about the ways in which we are to use wisdom to resist self vindication and to trust God for our most basic needs and to give freely of our time and effort and to give to those whose need is greater than our own. Let us understand that what we're being called to is to follow literally the example or to follow the example that the Lord Jesus literally set. The things that he calls us to think through with wisdom, he literally physically experienced on the cross. He did so out of obedience to the Father. He did so with great joy. And it is the passion of Christ, it is the death of Christ, that we come to the table this morning to remember and to proclaim. That what Jesus calls us to through his rhetorical overstatement, he himself literally experienced. That he is the model of what it means to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Uh, Father, first, I, I, I uh, Lord, we, we know that we understand your word imperfectly, and we understand at times um, the church has these understandings of your word and, and we want to be faithful. We want to be obedient. We want to live out the scriptures. And yet, because we miss, because we understand them imperfectly, father, uh, there are times in which people are hurt. And so Lord, we want to pray particularly this morning, uh, for folks who, um, have either been on the, the giving end of bad counsel that they thought was biblical. And Lord, I don't just mean this text. But Father, also those who've been on the receiving end and who have been hurt, not, not in, a, in a way that was marked by uh, sort of maliciousness or any kind of intent, but because we're just flawed human beings. And sometimes with good intention, flawed human beings give a really crummy counsel. And Lord, we, we pray your grace. We pray your forgiveness. Uh, Father, we pray uh, your kindness to both those who gave rotten counsel and those who suffered because of it. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for uh, the way that he wonderfully grabs our attention. And then, Father, thank you for the way in which he lived out literally all of the things that were spelled out in his far-flung hyperbolic illustrations. Father, we can only sing with the hymn writer, What wondrous love is this, O oh my soul?
O my soul. For we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.